Hi everyone, it's Jennifer. Welcome to podcast number two. Today, I want to talk about a topic that has really come at me this morning and I've spent a few hours sitting with it, resonating with it, talking to people about it, internalizing it, trying to figure out, navigate around this concept. And I felt if I shared it out with the world, somebody else may have an idea, may resonate with it, may wish to discuss it further, may come up with their own concepts about it. But I cannot work out right now whether I have found like a golden nugget um, in terms of recovery or whether I've just found something that's disguised as a golden nugget but actually isn't. So I want to talk today really about developmental trauma and how it's weaponized in abusive relationships and how possibly this could open up to a more expansive, more extensive deep dive during the recovery process of abusive relationships. And I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about that in a second. But I want to start with saying that when it comes to trauma, we have different forms of trauma. There is something called shock trauma. And shock trauma is when something happens to a person. It may be a physical violent attack. It may be a natural disaster. It may be medical negligence. Um, Anything that when a person feels incredibly overwhelmed, when the body becomes overwhelmed, when the body is not able to cope with the extremity, the intensity of a traumatic event, um, trauma can occur in that particular individual. Um, And then we have something called developmental trauma. And developmental trauma, as the name suggests, is trauma that occurs throughout the developmental stage of a person. So usually this is in childhood, early adulthood, etc., going into adulthood. And I was reading a book today um, by Judy Brown, and she was explaining something about the difference between shock trauma and developmental trauma, and how the two, although they, especially in abusive relationships, definitely a mesh, definitely coexist, and definitely need to be treated as a whole picture, as a whole um, piece. It's also worth bearing in mind that sometimes shock trauma and developmental trauma need to also be separated and treated separately because, and this is what really interested me today, she described developmental trauma as what didn't happen to you, what you didn't receive, what you didn't have access to. And I thought that was really, really relevant and interesting. Often um, in early stage development, children will experience a combination of shock trauma and developmental trauma. So things that did happen to them and things that didn't happen to them. And this is why when you go into adulthood, there are a lot of individuals out there who are experiencing complex trauma because complex trauma recognises that, as the name suggests, when you experience long-term trauma, especially when it's interpersonal, so in relationships, the trauma that you experience is going to be very complex. It's going to be very many layers that need to be dug into, moved aside, understood, integrated, accepted, and loved, and so forth. Um, And that's a recognised understanding of developmental trauma. But what I found really interesting is her labelling of developmental trauma as being things that didn't happen to you, what you didn't receive, what you didn't have access to. And I'm going to give you a few examples, first of all, because these will be really relevant later when I'm speaking about abusive relationships. So 
when it comes to developmental trauma, often um, a child will not necessarily be given the love that they need. Now, this may not be purposely done. I want to put that out there right now. A lot of people, when they begin their trauma healing, are very, very hesitant to approach the concept that maybe they experienced trauma as a child. Often when I speak to individuals about experiencing trauma as a child, they will immediately say, I wasn't abused, I had a wonderful childhood. And there's almost a level of protectiveness coming out with regards to especially parents, caregivers, important people in their early life, because the concept that they may have been traumatised by these individuals is something that a lot of people don't feel comfortable sitting with in the initial stages of healing. And I want to put it out there as well as a disclaimer that I recognise that both of my parents traumatised me. I recognise that I have a lot of deep-rooted wounds to work through because of my parents, what they weren't able to give me, uh, or possibly at, at times what they did to me. But it's also worth bearing in mind, and I speak from somebody um, who has done a lot of work on this, that I don't blame either of my parents and I don't dislike either of my parents and I have really wonderful relationships with both of my parents and I discuss openly these things with both of my parents and I've reached a stage where I'm able to hold them accountable for what happened whilst not blaming them and using that as a catalyst to move away from that experience and I recognise that both of my parents um, did the best they could growing up but that doesn't take away from that doesn't negate from the fact that I was traumatized by the fact that they were emotionally unavailable that they weren't emotionally nurturing but these are skills they didn't possess themselves and I recognized that what they did in the situation of me growing up was not purposely done they weren't purposely traumatizing me they weren't purposely trying to be neglectful they didn't have the skills to be able to not be neglectful and it's worth bearing in mind when I'm talking about um growing up and trauma that you may have experienced, I'm not necessarily saying that your parents did these things purposely or did these things knowingly. And it's worth bearing that in mind. Even the most loving, wonderful, nurturing parents will traumatise their children in ways that they may not be aware that they've done. So I'm not putting the blame out there and saying you have to blame your parents. They were horrible people. I'm merely stating that even the the parents with the best intentions will no doubt traumatise their children in some way unknowingly and they're not doing it purposely and they're not horrible people. Um, but this is ultimately what's going to happen. So I just want to put that disclaimer out there when I talk about this. In case there is anyone listening who has that barrier, has that wall in thinking, nope, don't want to address that. My parents are lovely. I don't want to tarnish their reputation. It's about recognising that they are still human they will still have traumatised you, but I'm not saying they did it purposely. Just putting it out there. So growing up, developmental trauma can come about, first of all, from a child's need to be loved if they don't receive that love. Parents who have not done their own work, parents who have not done their own healing or at least begun their healing and recognising their conditions, their beliefs, um, their traumas, the way that they are, the way that they... Um, present themselves to the world will not necessarily be able to offer their child unconditional love that's not to say they do not love their children but if they don't have the capabilities within them to nurture that unconditional love because they don't know what that feels like they've never experienced it themselves 
um, they will not be able to attune to their child and offer that love, the love the child may need in that moment because they, they simply don't have the capacity to do so. That's not for want of trying, that's just simply because they do not have the capacity to do so. And leading on from that, one of the biggest ones that a lot of children um, often struggle with and often develop trauma from is a lack of attunement. A lot of parents, especially parents who are emotionally unavailable, maybe I should take a little step back here for a second and explain what I mean by emotional unavailability. So again, Parents who have not done their own trauma work, parents who have not recognised, um, understood, integrated their core beliefs, their core values, their childhood conditionings, their societal conditionings, the way they've been brought up, um, how their traumas, how their experiences in life, how their past relationships have impacted them and affected them. They will not have been able to integrate and understand what it means to be emotionally available and in tune with other people, to be present in the moment, to be able to offer up um, unwavering um, availability, there will often be many bridges in place. So for example, parents who, there are a lot of parents who haven't done the work, who therefore struggle with their emotional state themselves when they experience an uncomfortable emotion, such as anger, such as grief, such as sadness, disappointment, frustration, may unconsciously bypass these emotions. They may isolate themselves. They don't feel comfortable expressing themselves in front of other people. They may suppress those emotions until they burst out into a, in a, to a fit of anger. Um, they may make excuses. So if, if somebody asks them how they are and they say, oh, I'm okay, I'm okay, because they don't have that ability to express how they're feeling emotionally and they don't feel comfortable and safe in their body or in their environment or with their relationships around them to express themselves openly and vulnerably, those individuals are not able to be fully expansive and emotionally available to relationships around them. So what happens when they have children is they are, whether verbally or non-verbally, um, expressing that emotional unavailability to their child. When their child cries, for example, if they are uncomfortable with the concept of crying and they're not able to sit in their own tears and their own grief and sadness and express it without trying to flee the situation or suppress the situation or ignore the situation, they will, without realising it, be projecting that onto the child. So they may pick the child up, it's okay, don't cry, don't cry, don't have to cry, it's not a problem. And they will try to, invert commas, fix that child's emotional state because they don't feel comfortable allowing that child to experience that emotion fully and just be there and have the tools and guidance and knowledge to know how to navigate through that experience whilst honouring the child experiencing that emotional experience. I swear I said experience far too many times. But this is the reality of the situation. These small little things can traumatise a child. If a child feels upset about something, for example, they trod on their toy and they broke it. As an adult, we have the rationality, we have the parts of the brain, the prefrontal cortex that allows us to go, it's only a toy, we have many more, or we can get a replacement, it's not that big of a deal. But when we project those things onto children, Children do not have the capacity because their prefrontal cortex hasn't fully developed, but they don't have the capacity to rationalise and reason and logic that their experience is any less than as 
distraught and devastating as it is for them in that moment. And when they are in an emotional state, when they are upset, when they're crying, when they're angry, when they're frustrated, and the parent unconsciously belittles them, it's okay, stop crying, or don't be silly, you don't need to cry. These small little things teach the children that their emotional state is invalid, that their emotional state is too too extreme, um, which can often lead them into adulthood, into going into relationships that gaslight them and being told they're too sensitive, they're, they're too needy, they're too clingy. Because as a child, they learned that their emotional state is too much. And this is, again, something that parents do unconsciously um, for the most part. If they are not emotionally comfortable sitting in that emotional state, allowing the child to experience that, validating them, saying it's okay, it's safe, I understand it's a devastating experience, but you're safe, and allowing them to work through while you help attune with them, this is this is going to leave you and the child not being able to understand emotional availability because you're not emotionally available to that child. You are simply trying to manage or control a situation. Um, I hope I've made a lot of sense because I feel like I've gone around the houses of that one. But So attunement. If you're not able to attune to your emotional state of the child, this can often lead a child feeling traumatised. Um, a lot of parents as well have a problem with physical affection. If, again, you have not done the work yourself and you're not able to express yourself physically in relationships, often when you grow up, you may not hold your child as much as you want to. Or even if you do hold your child, your child is going to feel the energy that you're not fully encompassed in that in that hold at that moment in time. And that can traumatise a child when they don't feel comfortable. One example I would give you, actually, to give you an example of this, is that I know my mum and my dad loved me to the full capacity that they can do so. But I was told a story that when I was very young, um, from six months onwards, basically um, at an age where I was able to start moving myself away, I would wriggle out of being held by either parent um, until they turned me around so I was facing away from them. Uh, I did not feel comfortable in the early state, in the months following my birth, to be held and to face either of my caregivers. I faced myself away and that is me at the time, although I wasn't able to articulate it, I was barely months old, that was me already recognising that it wasn't safe to fully connect with that parent. That parent wasn't fully able to hold me and to nurture me in that moment of being held. So as a protective measure, I would push and squirm until I faced away from the caregivers. I almost protected myself from being rejected because ultimately I felt that rejection when they would hold me and face me. Just a small little thing, but that's worth nurturing, um, knowing. Um, and just as I said, with emotional unavailability, the, the ability to nourish that child's emotional state and to validate that child's emotional state and to acknowledge um, what the child needs at any given time is a very difficult terrain um, to navigate through, especially if you are somebody who struggles with your own emotional state. And all of these things combined are then developmental trauma. What didn't happen to you, you didn't get the love that you needed in that moment. You didn't feel attuned to your caregiver. Um, you didn't receive the nourishment of fully emotionally expressive parents. You didn't um, have parents who were able to self-soothe you or help you to self-soothe yourself or to teach you how to regulate your nervous system and all of these can ultimately lead to developmental trauma wow that was a strong introduction so 
Taking all this aside, the main point of today's podcast is to talk about how these developmental trauma wounds can be used as weapons in abusive relationships and whether or not there is an element of healing that needs to be addressed and considered further and extensively in order to help survivors move on. So it's worth bearing in mind that I'm talking specifically today about narcissistic sociopathic psychopathically abusive relationships so pathologically abusive relationships i say this not because non-pathologically abusive relationships cannot have the same impact i'm saying i speak from experience and given that i haven't experienced a non-pathologically abusive relationship i i can't speak for those individuals but if you feel that this is inclusive of you then please carry on listening because hopefully you'll get some relevance out of this so It is well recognised that in pathologically abusive relationships, the majority of people coming out of these spaces are going to be experiencing complex trauma. The emotional, the psychological, the physical, the financial, the sexual, the social, the spiritual abuse that individuals um, experience in these spaces will ultimately lead a person to be experiencing complex trauma symptoms following that relationship. It's a given. Um, For those of you who have delved a little bit deeper into pathologically abusive relationships or have experienced them yourselves, it's also recognised that coming out of these relationships, and I will also speak about um, childhood trauma, so if you have neglectful or abusive parents growing up, you may also experience this, that you come out of these spaces with... um, what is called trauma bonding. And I'm going to use trauma bonding and chemical dependency as sort of one and the same thing. So you come out of these spaces with various elements of your internal world um, addicted to that abusive space or that abusive person um, because of the, of the dynamics, the push-pull dynamics in those relationships. So it's recognised in communities online that these two are sort of a given Um, narcissistic abusive relationships will lead to complex trauma will often lead to trauma bonding stroke chemical dependency now if you've dived a little bit deeper if you're um if you've experienced this yourself and you're working for your healing you may recognize what is possibly quite a unique element to these relationships in that you will also often come out of these spaces with cognitive dissonance and for those watching um listening who are not necessarily sure what that means cognitive dissonance in a very basic um, way is when you have two conflicting viewpoints or opinions about a situation or a person now in these abusive spaces there will be times when the abuser will be inverted commas nice Um, the abuser recognizes they cannot be horrific all of the time because most people would be able to flee at some point because they would realize there is no positive element to this relationship. So an abuser at times, and I, you can't see because this is a podcast, but I am doing the inverted commas, they will be nice. Often it's an act, often it's a ploy. It's still a manipulative, manipulative tactic, but it's there. And out of these relationship spaces, um, you will often have these individuals saying, but he was nice in these moments, but at the same time, he was abusive in these other moments. And... At times he felt safe, but then at times he did this, so he was unsafe. And I say he because I'm speaking from experience, um, and I also recognise that a high percentage of abusive individuals are male. Statistics are out. 
Um, but that doesn't mean that this cannot include females. I'm just using my own experience. So cognitive dissonance is not a simple um, step-by-step progress. There is a lot that has to be unpicked for you to be able to validate your experience in order for you be, to be able to fully recognise that the person that you were with was dangerous, that the niceties were manipulation, they weren't real, and various other elements. And, and bear in mind as well, very quickly in these relationships, it's worth bearing in mind that the love bombing stage, which is where you meet this person who is your all-encompassing, what you would consider to be your soulmate, and then the rest of the relationship where you never see that person again, you are held in a space where you're constantly thinking, if I just do this, this and this, I can get back to that wonderful soulmate person I met in the beginning. And part of cognitive dissonance um, unravelling is understanding that that person never existed. But you hold this person in your head because you cannot for one second fathom that somebody could fabricate an entire personality for a set amount of time to draw you in. And so that's where cognitive dissonance comes in. So again, we have the complex trauma, we have the trauma bonding, the chemical dependency, and for pathologically abusive relationships, you may also be experiencing cognitive dissonance, which can take a long time to unravel, unpick, understand, and to dissolve. Now, while this element that I'm going to talk about now is definitely interlinked with the complex trauma symptoms, I was thinking today when I read this book, when um, Julie talked about developmental trauma being what didn't happen to you, what you didn't receive, what you didn't have access to. It made me think about the uniqueness of pathologically abusive relationships and the fact that, let me take a step back actually, I want to add a little bit before I start this. When you have been traumatized by your parents if you've had parents who are not able to attune with your needs who are not able to nurture um a healthy emotional state who are not able to regulate with you who are not able to offer you the love you need at the moment in time whatever it is and in whatever way you are traumatized by those experiences as you grow into adulthood unless those experiences are understood and addressed it is most likely you will gravitate towards people who, and this is an unconscious decision, by the way, this is not something you're choosing to do, but gravitate towards people who you feel comfortable being around. And those people will most likely be mirroring the same behaviours you experienced growing up. If you grew up with emotionally unavailable parents who were not able to express themselves fully, you will most likely gravitate towards people who are the same, who are emotionally unavailable, who are not able to express themselves fully. Because meeting and being around somebody who is emotionally expressive, who can be vulnerable and open and and express themselves in any way they need to express themselves, can often feel uncomfortable. It's an often uncomfortable terrain and one of two things happen either the person uses that as growth and allows themselves to be vulnerable in that situation or in a lot of cases the person feels uncomfortable with somebody being so inverted commas what they would call full-on and will move away from that person because it's tugging on their um their inability to be emotionally expressive in that moment And it's worth bearing in mind that this is often an unconscious thing. So I'm not saying, I don't like using the word attract. You hear people say you attract what you are. And for me, that's a very toxic statement because often these things are done unconsciously. If I give you an example, 
growing up, my first long-term relationship with a wonderful person, um, when I look back to it now, I realise that in that space, he was emotionally unavailable. He was a wonderful person. There was no abuse. There was no neglect. Um, But he mirrored back at me the emotional unavailability that I was familiar with because both of my parents had been that way themselves, which is why the relationship wasn't fully fulfilling, which is why the relationship ended. Same with many of my friends. I met a lot of friends who, when I tried to be more expressive, when I tried to open myself up, when I tried to um, grow as a person, was often met with quite a lot of barriers because ultimately I had gravitated towards other people who were uncomfortable fully expressing themselves and therefore the the relationships weren't as rewarding um, and as fulfilling as I wanted them to be. Um, And I found it very difficult in those situations to open myself up. I do have a problem with a number of my family members as well who are not emotionally available and therefore I feel quite constricted at times when I'm around these people. Now, it's worth bearing in mind that abusive people specifically narcissists, sociopaths and psychopaths, are the most extreme form of emotional unavailability. Um, In a lot of cases, there's a lot of theory that in part some of these individuals, their kryptonite is emotions. Like emotional, being emotionally vulnerable is a weakness to them. It's a terrifying concept of vulnerability. What if somebody finds out the real me? I can't have them doing that. Which is why often some of the behaviours, the controlling elements, the abusive elements, the destructive elements come about through this fear of being emotionally vulnerable. They simply cannot be um, in the state that they're in. So it's worth bearing in mind that when I was in the relationship with the psychopath, he mirrored back at me in the most extreme form possible what emotional unavailability looked like um, to the point that it was painful. Um, And I have now taken that for me personally, I've chosen to take it as a lesson to recognise like how painful it is to be in a relationship with somebody who is not able and who, to be honest, um, who will not navigate in any terrain that allows him to be emotionally unavailable and be emotionally available, should I say. So it's worth bearing that in mind when I say what I'm going to say next. When growing up, you will navigate towards these relationships that are emotionally unavailable if you've had caregivers who were emotionally unavailable themselves. But in these relationships with friends, possibly um, in relationships, I don't speak for everyone, I speak for myself. Although these relationships weren't necessarily as fulfilling, at the same time, they weren't extreme enough to re-traumatise me um, and the developmental wounds that I had. So... Being in friendships with people who were not able to attune to me would have been unfulfilling to me, but they would have been familiar enough that I felt comfortable in those situations. And they certainly didn't traumatise or re-traumatise me by being so out of attunement with me that it, it caused my body to go into a state of overwhelm. It just basically perpetuated what I already felt familiar with. Um, which is why these relationships were unfulfilling, but they weren't traumatising. When you're in a relationship with a narcissist, a sociopath, with a psychopath, and I speak from experience, these relationships, as well as being so emotionally unavailable, because this individual quite literally cannot, they have walls in place, they have behaviours and dysfunctions to ensure that they're not able to be emotionally vulnerable in any way, shape or form. In these spaces of 
of abuse. Your developmental trauma wounds are quite literally uprooted and weaponized and used against you. For example, in the relationship with the psychopath, there were hundreds upon hundreds of times where his abuse led me um, into being in a state of absolute grief. I would be bawling my eyes out. I would be shaking, um, unable to regulate myself. And in these moments, um, had a person, a friend come to me who was also unemotionally available, um, emotionally unavailable and given me a hug and said, it's okay, everything will be okay, don't need to cry. It may have invalidated my experience, but it probably wouldn't have re-traumatized me. But in the state where I was a sobbing mess on the floor, crying my eyes out, absolutely um, having lost all sense of self in that moment, the psychopath at times just sat back in a space where I could see he was there. He was in the same room as me. He may have been sharing a bed with me, but he purposely chose not to touch me, not to help me, not to nurture me, not to attune with me. He weaponized that lack of attunement by quite literally sitting back and watching me. At times he would leave the room, but I knew that he was next door and he could hear me. He knew I was in that state and I knew that he was choosing not to support me or guide me through or help me through or calm me down. Um, at times he would belittle me. He would... Um, be quite verbally aggressive towards me about my tears, blame me, um, call me all the names under the sun, tell me I was wrong to be crying in that moment or that I was causing him to feel a certain way or that I was ruining his day or whatever it was, he was projecting that blame back onto my shoulders. So in all of these instances, it wasn't a case of him not being able to emotionally attune with me it was him purposely making decisions to step back from that situation, to take any possibility of attunement and to quite literally uproot my developmental trauma of not feeling like I could be attuned with somebody and that it wasn't safe to be attuned to somebody and quite literally weaponizing it and firing it back into my face. Um, another example, which is the combination of what I spoke about in the beginning, the shock trauma and the developmental trauma. So when I had to experience going through my abortions and there were two for a very, um, unfortunately for a very specific reason because of me medical negligence that there were two, um, in both of those spaces, in both of those times, um, the shock trauma was me having to go through this because I was coerced into doing so. It wasn't my choice. It didn't, it wasn't what I wanted to do, but I was made to feel that the, that was the only ultimatum I had. But in both of those spaces, he removed himself to another country. In both of those spaces, he made it very clear to me, I am not going to be there for you during either of these events. In fact, I'm going to punish you by not being there for either events. He switched off his phone. I believe the second time around, he blocked me for that particular day. I later found out he had been at a party on a beach and he was high on magic mushrooms. And in both of those instances, he showed me by his non-actions, by not being there, the very painful reality of neglect of not being again in tune with, not being emotionally available for helping me through the shock trauma of having to go through something as horrific as I had to go through.
So these are two examples where developmental trauma wounds within me were uprooted and not just, um, you know, tugged upon within the relationship or reaffirmed within the relationship, but were quite literally uprooted and weaponized against me. And the point of this podcast is to really talk about how you navigate away from that in the aftermath of abuse. It's worth bearing in mind, we recognise, as a society, we recognise that complex trauma is a thing. We recognise the symptoms of complex trauma, the emotional flashbacks, the nightmares, the suicidal ideation, the depression, the anxiety symptoms, the dissociation, all of these very many symptoms we are aware of and we have things in place to help people to navigate away from. We also have things in place to help people to understand trauma bonding. Um, And trauma bonding, I think, is very much linked up with this whole idea of developmental trauma. But what I wonder, and this is where sort of the podcast is going today, I wonder if recognising in these abusive spaces that developmental trauma is not just tugged upon, as I said, it's not just reaffirmed, it is weaponised and it is purposely used time and time and time again to reaffirm to the abuse survivor or the abuse victim at the time that you really aren't worthy of being seen you really aren't worthy of being um of having support of being able to be attuned with somebody to be able to have somebody emotionally available to you to have that love that you deserve i wonder whether or not that in itself is a huge part of recovery that needs to be addressed dissected, understood, whether a full autopsy needs to be carried out on that particular element of it, um, that needs to coincide with recovering from complex trauma. Because complex trauma are the symptoms. Complex trauma is how your body, how your nervous system, how your mind, how your emotional state, how all of these things have been impacted by the abuse. Um, following the aftermath of of your experiences. That's a recognised state. But I wonder whether or not there needs to be a deep dive. And this is something I'm considering possibly adding into um, a future workshop that I want to design for abuse survivors. Whether or not there needs to be a real deep dive on not only understanding your developmental trauma, understanding how that came about in the relationship, um, understanding how it was used against you but then understanding how moving forward that's going to continue to show up in your life and how you can navigate away from that so that you are able to recognize when these developmental trauma um, symptoms or behaviors are being nurtured away from and when they're being weaponized and I know for example in the space that I'm in Uh, and especially a lot of the healing communities that I'm I'm a part of, it's recognised that alongside the complex trauma recovery, you need to consider inner child work, you need to to consider your childhood conditionings, you need to consider um, your attachment styles possibly, or elements of your attachment style that may have um, come about um, in the dynamics of these relationships. But I wonder whether or not having a real deep dive into developmental trauma. Uh, I know it's sort of all co, it all sort of um, meshes together. It's all um, part of the same process. But I wonder if specific deep diving into recognising developmental trauma, 
understanding what that may look like in adult dynamic relation and uh, the dynamics of adult relationships recognizing how when um your developmental wounds can and were used against you in these abusive relationships recognizing the impact that when it is weaponized how it impacted you going forward in that relationship and in your relationship with yourself and your sense of self and then the steps you can actually take to move away from these thought patterns that may have been created because of of this weaponized trauma um the behaviors that you may now still exhibit because of this weaponized trauma um and all of these various elements of complexity that come about when certain wounds of yours are not only triggered in these relationships, but are quite literally uprooted, as I said, turned around, weaponized against you in these spaces to reaffirm for the abuser's um, own personal gain that you really are nothing, that you really are unworthy of any of these wonderful, amazing qualities um, that you rightly deserve. And I just wondered, as I said, the complexity of that I don't know if I'm making any sense to anyone listening, but I wonder if the complexity of that is worth addressing in its entirety alongside complex trauma recovery, alongside trauma bonding. I would say trauma bonding is definitely integrated with this whole weaponized um, weaponized trauma idea, but I feel coming out of this space, having people heal from complex trauma while saying to them, maybe it's time to do some inner child work, um, can often be... It can often leave a lot of people quite confused or quite complex, um, perplexed, sorry, with where to go and how to go about this. For example, me, I do a lot of inner child work, and some of the inner child work I do is is probably quite relevant to understanding certain aspects of how I showed up in that relationship. But also, there are very many elements of inner child work that didn't necessarily play a huge part in the abusive relationship. And when I say I play a huge part, I don't mean that I had any part in the abuse. I mean, um, not saying that at all. I'm saying as in how I showed up in those relationships. And so inner child work in of itself is incredible, absolutely incredible, uh, at building a relationship with yourself, building an understanding of yourself, building the building blocks to move yourself into a space where you where you want to be and the person you wish to be. But I think sometimes inner child work is so complex um, and there's so many avenues that you can go down when working with the inner child that when you're coming out of these abusive spaces, I think it's so important in those moments to really focus on the actual true wounds of yours that came into play in that relationship. And again, I say came into play not because you had anything to do in the abuse at all, no way, shape or form. It's always on the abuser's shoulders. But if you start trying to address inner child work or shadow work or part work, as a whole concept coming out of these relationships, it may be something that's quite hefty to get through, to get to the the main sort of the crux of of the the main wounds that you wish to deal with to move away from the complex trauma. So I'm just putting it out there. It's something I need to sit with, something I need to reflect upon. It's something that may be incorporated in 
future workshops that I do. Um, I do plan on bringing out a big workshop next year. It's a few months away, but there's a lot of work that needs to go into this. But I do wonder whether or not coming out of these relationships, it's definitely worth integrating complex trauma um, complex trauma work, uh, trauma bonding work, cognitive dissonance work, developmental trauma work, or inner child work, shadow work, all this stuff. But I wonder if specific separation can be made with these things as well so that you can really really deep dive um into how it was weaponized against you and how you can move forward so that it's never again weaponized against you in any spaces that you're in and also to recognize these developmental wounds and how you can navigate away from them so that you can hopefully gravitate towards people who are familiar with you that are less toxic less abusive or not toxic not abusive should I say and that are more healthy for you um, or healthier for you uh, in the long run so I just wondered I'm putting it out there I may have not made any sense I may have just talked at you for 45 minutes and not really made any sense at all somebody or some people may come back and say this is all part of complex trauma healing but I feel like maybe if we're a little bit more specific about what complex trauma healing means. And definitely when you have symptoms coming out of these relationships where you're so severely emotionally dysregulated, this needs to be addressed first. If you're as dysregulated as I was, any concept of developmental trauma, any concept of anything else outside of that wouldn't have meant anything to me at all in that state. I could not control myself. I didn't feel like I can control myself. I was a danger to myself. So until some of the symptoms are addressed, you certainly cannot do any deep dives, as I'm suggesting. But this is all, again, going to be taken into consideration in my course moving forward next year. But I just wonder, what are your views? Please share with me. Please DM me. Please email me. Tell me, what do you think? Do you think that understanding weaponized developmental trauma is a huge, um, huge um, opportunity to really integrate some deep-rooted stuff um, following an abusive relationship, or whether you think it's just a part and parcel of complex trauma and it will come up and about when it needs to come up and about. Um, I'd be very open to interpretation, but I hope you've enjoyed listening to my babbling. I hope I've made some form of sense in some small way to you. And I look forward to to my next podcast, whatever that may be, whatever comes to mind. If you've got any ideas, any suggestions, anything you would like me to speak about, please again, DM me, contact me. I'm very, very open to talking about different sort of concepts as there is so much to talk about in this field of of trauma. And uh, in particular, when it comes to pathologically abusive people, so much to talk about. So I'm very... uh, very open to new discussions and if you are listening and you feel that you would like to discuss a particular subject with me please get in touch I'm quite happy I don't know how it would work we can sort it out but I would definitely love to work with you and and do a podcast together so get in touch thank you very much for listening I'm sure you'll hear from me very soon and take care